So grab your Bibles. Let's join together this morning. We've been resting and wrestling with the book of James for some months now. We're currently in James chapter 4. If you weren't here last time, we began this chapter and we talked about conflict. As James so eloquent, eloquently phrases it, it's not if conflict will arise, it is when conflict arises. Conflict is inevitable. We see it around in the world around us. We see it in relationships. We see it in our own midst, in our own lives. And really, James's heart is not just to identify conflict out there, but to enable us to examine the real source. Where does it come from, he says. And of course, all of our tendencies to say, well, it's that person's fault, or it's the government's fault, or it's everybody else's issue, but not mine. I'm, I'm fine. I'm good. And James says, well, hang on, let's wrestle with that and let's go a little bit deeper. And we looked at the source of conflict. We looked at the solution of conflict. And that brings us to verse 11. Really the outflow of a lot of the things that we talked about last week, of this this life of grace, this life that's been transformed. We looked at this wonderful passage right in the middle there as James is wrestling and dealing with so many things. And he says, but here's God's response. Here's what God says to the midst of our mistakes and failings. He gives grace. And not just grace. He gives more grace. He gives abounding grace, kind of reflecting what Paul says in the book of Romans, where he says, the more sin was there, the more grace abounded. See, it's not just a picture of a grace that's just enough. It's not a picture of grace that just kind of slightly tips the scale. This is an all-conquering, all-covering, abounding, complete Grace, a grace that brings transformation. It affects everything. And James has talked about so many aspects of that as we've studied through this particular letter. So verse 11, read it with me. If you've got your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. If not, it says this, do not speak evil against one another. Thanks. Someone was actually reading that with me. That was fantastic. I meant read silently, but that's even better. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So already you see that this is more a case of not looking inward as we did last time. Let's look at the source. Let's deal with some of the root issues in our hearts and how we deal with them. He's now saying, let's look at what's coming out. Let's look at the way that you are speaking and dealing with and treating other people around you. So often the test is not just what's going in, is it? A great test is what's coming out. That can reveal what's going on in our hearts. So what is this word? He says, do not speak evil. And this is an interesting word. A literal translation would be don't talk down. Don't talk down. Evil is actually implied, and it certainly is implied in the coming verses. But this is a word that can can be used to express a whole gamut, a whole smorgasbord of different ways that we speak. Everything from gossip, you know, those little things that we just kind of niggle with around the corner, behind someone's back, those little 
biting comments all the way through. Some translations say slander. So slander has that picture of intentional uh, degrading of someone's, malicious degrading of someone's character, an intentional attack. So the full gamut. He's saying don't speak evil of one another. Don't slander. Don't criticize another translation. says don't gossip. Don't do anything that could be considered talking down about or of other people. We had a uh, <coughs> fascinating discussion, must be a um, month or so ago now, In we've started up a new home group, and here's a bit of a plug. If you're not already in a home group, get connected. There is something so important about us not just coming on a Sunday, that's wonderful, not just doing our private Christian thing and our own experience, but you know, the rubber hits the road when we're in relationship with other people. We're not going to be speaking evil of other people if we don't have anybody to speak evil of. Now, I, I do okay when it's just me. It's when all of a sudden there's another picture, another person in the picture that I run into trouble. But we're not designed and built and created just to live for ourselves. Get connected, get plugged in. If you're not already, come and see me. We'll put you in a home group. But we had this great discussion and we've got this home group that is, is full of people, which is wonderful. It's like a cultural experience from... Um, non-Australian backgrounds. So we've got Singaporean Chinese in there, we've got some Fiji Indians, we've got Malay Chinese. There's a real mix. And then we've got me, born and bred in Canberra. Although I have moved across the border, I now officially live in New South Wales, for the record. And we were talking about some of the differences of Australian culture. What are some of the things that define us as a nation? You know, there's things that, that hang over nations. And one of the big things that across the board, people from these different cultural experiences said, they all commented that they cannot get over how there is this critical or tearing down reality to the way that Australians live. Like our, our first response often to particularly people in authority, no one in this room, of course, people in leadership to maybe the umpire on the football ground, is what? Speaking words of encouragement? Or finding ways to just bring them down a few pegs? Isn't that true? Aren't we like that? And it's fascinating hearing that as someone who is a non-Australian person coming into that environment. Someone said, I didn't realise at times people were complimenting me. I thought they were insulting me. I let, oh, that's a compliment. Okay, that's just, that's the way the culture is because even sometimes biting remarks can be the way that we show affection to one another. It's, it's all about what we elevate and what we bring down. It's almost our, our God-given natural right, our, our, our born identity to just make sure everybody's level and even. And the only people that really seem to get elevated, certainly looking at our history, is often the, the convicts or the criminals. Criminals and the sporting stars. And sometimes there's little difference between the two, isn't there? <laughs> so here's the question for us. Given that we're in that environment, just bringing that back to a personal level, are we more able to see the shortcomings in people or the strengths? Like what, honestly, if you were honestly before the Lord, as you look around you, family, work, what is your go-to predisposition? 
Is it to see the shortcomings? Oh, did you see that? Or is it to see the strengths? Man, I, I can see this strength in you. Is it to speak words that just bring people down a few notches? Or is it to speak words that build people up? Honestly, what is our predisposition? I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to move on very quickly. I think if we're all honest, there is this natural predisposition that we have to speak evil against one another. And I say that for this reason. It's so easy to read through these passages, and I know I keep bringing us back to this and think, well, that's a nice, it's a nice passage, but it's not for me. That's for this sort of person. That's for that sort of person. But this, is, this, this has no application to me. And I think if we really allow the word to speak to our hearts, there is something here for us. So we could leave it there, but James moves to an even bigger picture. Let's read on. He says, do not speak evil. And this is why, verse, second half of verse 11, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. <clears throat> Excuse me. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. In verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, and he is the one who is able to save and to destroy. And again, as James loves to do, finishes with a question. So who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? He's just uh, given the credentials for the one who is a judge. So how do you compare? Is that really what you're wanting to do? Is that really the level that you want to elevate yourself to? So James, he, he reveals his heart. He's not just talking about the words that we speak. He's talking about the heart behind it because the words reveal the heart which in this area so often reveal an element of being judgmental judgmentalism judgmentalism and effectively he's saying is when there is this heart of judgment we're elevating ourselves not only above others but we're elevating ourselves into the very position and place of God so there's the two issues there Number one is that we're really in denial that we have any issues ourselves. Issues aren't here. When we're judging other people, we're saying, well, we're, we're better. We're somehow better than they are. I have a right to judge and to make comment about this issue in someone's life because really I, I am in denial of my own sin. And the second place is that we put ourselves in this place of God. Lord, we thank you for all you've done. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. But really, we can take over from here. Now, we're okay here. We can sit in your place and we can discern the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts. And we can make our own judgments apart from the judgment that you have already made as the King and as the Lord. And so I would suggest this to us. When we are in that place, we personally, when we as a church, when any church, when any society is in that place, we're all in a world of trouble. And unfortunately, that's so often the places that churches are found. If you ask around, what's one of the things that churches are known for more than any other? 
It is a place of judgment. I don't want to go there because I know from the moment that I walk in that door, I will be judged. There will be people who believe that they're more superior than me and that they have the right to sit in the place of God and tell me all the things that I'm doing wrong, all the things that I'm not doing right. See, of all the places on the planet, and this is where I want us to get to, this is, I believe, the essence of what James is really encouraging us here. Of all the places in the world that know what it's like to be a place of hope, to be a place of life, to be a place of redemption, not religion, to be a place of acceptance, a place of grace, it should be the church. It should be the church. That should be the thing that we're known for. And I want to make that our mission. I want to make or encourage us to make that each of our mission. Am I truly a person who others would say, that's what they're known for? I might not agree with everything they say, but I know that if I hang out, he's someone who builds me up. He just shows grace. He shows acceptance. He shows love. He shows mercy and kindness. Because I know in my own life where people would come away with the op opposite impression. I'm staying away from him because I know exactly what I'm getting. I'm getting words of condemnation, words of criticism. So let's look at how we can do that. And I want to make this one very quick distinction because it's very easy, as I've said, to, for us, and we'll talk about why, to be a place where this sense of judgment reigns. It's also easy in some circles of the church to be then, well, we, we can't judge anything. We can't speak into anybody's lives. We can't call out sin. We can't, we can't touch anything. And that's equally as unhelpful. You see, there is this sense, and I've struggled this week even to find an exact word for it, other than saying there's a sense of right judgment and there's a sense of wrong judgment. Jesus puts it this way in John 7, 24. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So he gives us a clue there. He's saying, don't judge by the externalities. Don't judge by something superficial. Don't develop your own measures of righteousness. But there is this place for right judgment. And I say it for this reason. There's one passage of Scripture, I believe, these days, which everybody who, they might be non-Christians, they might be never have read the Bible in their life, but there's one Scripture they can quote. Maybe there was another generation where it would have been John 3.16. Most people knew that. These days, not so much. But here's the one passage, and I'll put it in my own words, the way that it's often said to me. It goes like this. You can't judge me. Anyone heard that? You can't judge me. What right do you have to judge me? So is that actually true? Do we have a right to judge others? I mean, Jesus seems to indicate, he says, well, there is a sense in which we need to make right judgments. And I think if we just unpack it with me, if we think this through, we make judgments all the time. And we need to make judgments. If you get a friend this week who calls you up and they say, you know, I've just got to, I've got to tell somebody this. I am so angry right now, I'm about to go and kill someone. And I hope you don't get that phone call. What are you going to do? 
Hopefully there's something in you that says, hey, this is actually wrong and we need to address this situation. Do not put that phone down. I'm on my way over and we're going to work through this together. So that is right or wrong judgment. That's right judgment. If I see my kids and they're going at it and they're, you know, just literally, it's a free-for-all. And I come into that situation and I say, kids, this is, this is wrong. And it's wrong for these reasons. And we need to love each other. Is that right or wrong judgment? That's right judgment. Or another example of the other end of the spectrum, if I gather my kids at the end of the week and I say, look, I've gathered up some comments from your teachers. I want to go through them all. And whoever has the best feedback, they get to sit closest to me at the table. They get to eat from my plate and they are worthy of my affection. Right judgment or wrong judgment? Okay, all right. So we can see just in the natural that there is this sense of right judgment and there's this sense of wrong judgment. So grab your Bibles. Let's look at this somewhat at times controversial passage, Matthew 7:15, that talks about not judging. Is that really what Jesus says? And if so, what does he mean? So Matthew 7, verse 15. Oh, sorry. Matthew 7, verse 7. Is that right? I've got it written here. Read it out. What passage is that? Yes. 7 1. 7 1 to 15. Gotcha. Are we there? There we go. Thank you. So this is Jesus' words, and he says this Judge not. So for many of us, we'd think, well, that's it. It's the end of the story. Close the book. Jesus said it. We're not to judge. But there is a context here that is equally as important as that instruction. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. Verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. First of all, what's he saying here? He's saying, when it comes to judging others, remember this. How is it that you would like to be treated in your own life? Do you want judgment or do you want mercy? Most of us would say, well, I, I want mercy. That's what Jesus is saying, first of all. Consider or remember mercy. And then verse 3, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So first of all, Jesus has said, remember mercy and then number two, he said, remember that we are all in this together. We're all sinners. Before you go to judge anybody, examine your own life. I love that picture. Imagine trying to remove the speck out of someone's eye when you've got a plank. And literally, the translation is a plank. Don't be a hypocrite. Remember mercy and remember we are all sinners. See, here is our propensity, and this is really where I want to get to, and we'll land here in a moment. We have this tendency, we all do, to live by a system. We want a system. We want to know if we're doing okay. In fact, James here is talking right to the heart of the religious prevailing system of the day. 
of these Pharisees. People had grown up with people who had not only made a point of their righteous works, but they'd made a point of putting them on display. They had developed a system and they were proudly displaying it for all to see. This is why I'm okay and why you're not. They'd drawn up all these distinctions. This you can do, this you can't. You can have fellowship with this sort of person. You cannot have fellowship with this sort of person. You can touch this and you'll be clean. You cannot touch that and you'll be unclean. Obviously, there was the law of God, but they developed all this additional religion. And that kind of religion, as James has talked earlier about, worthless religion always leaves us in a place of judgment. It always does. And there is this propensity. The, the example I always like to use is, and I've got to get some mileage out of these illustrations with my kids because pretty soon they'll be old enough to be in here and I'll have to find a whole new source for my sermon illustrations. <laughs> but when my uh, eldest child started kindergarten, she's someone who just loves the system, loved everything about it, just loved school, loved the discipline, just one of those kids. That was not me at all. Anyone a school lover? Not many of us, okay. Anyone like me, they just, school is not my place. I'd rather be out on the oval kicking a footy of us. Well, she was a system lover and she was so excited she came home one day and she said, Dad, you're not going to believe this. this is fantastic. And in the kindergarten classroom, the teachers had set up this behavioural performance scale. The way it worked is that you had pegs on a board. So every ch child in the class had their own peg and as you did something right, you moved up the board and as you did something wrong, you moved down the board and it was all colour-coded. So all the kids got assigned different classes in our jobs in the class and she came home very excited. She said, Dad, you never guess what? I said, what? She said, well, we all got different jobs and I get to be the peg controller. Like, I get to move the pegs up when kids are good and I get to move the pegs down when they're bad. And, and you could see it went to her head a little bit. She, she came home and she said, Dad, I had, I had to move three boys up, this and, you know, two, two others down and I got the rundown. The only thing I heard about at school was how everybody did on the performance ranking system. And then, of course, one day she came home and she was quite upset. I said, sweetheart, you know, are you okay? She said, Dad, I just I had the worst day of my life. It's always the worst day of my life with her. She's a little bit dramatic. She said, Dad, I had the worst day of my life. I said, sweetheart, what happened? You know, did, did someone do something mean to you? She said, no, no, well, we had a relief teacher. And I said, oh, well... Was it okay? Did the teacher do something to you? She said, no, 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 it's much worse. It's much, much worse. See, the problem was the relief teacher, she didn't know the system. <laughs> she didn't know the system. And my poor little girl was devastated because everything that she built her sense of kindergarten worth about was reduced to nothing. You see, we want this system. And what James is pointing us back towards is there is the law of God and there is a system, but there's only one measurement. There is only one for the believer. And the measurement is mercy. The measurement is mercy. See, James is saying here, there is only one lawgiver and one judge. God has revealed in his word that he is a holy God, that he hates sin. 
He has revealed what is expected of us. Remember this picture. This eternal God, this King of glory, he put on flesh and he lived among us to show us what? To come with judgment? To come and say, look, there it is. There's the law. And you guys are so far away from where you need to be, it is not funny. If you don't clean up your act, I'm going to smite you off the face of the earth and start again. That's not the picture of Jesus that the Gospels reveal. Let me tell you the picture. Let me remind you the picture of Jesus. This is the King of glory who stooped down when there was a woman there caught in the very act of adultery. As the Pharisees, as the religious leaders gathered with stones in their hand, he gently bent down. He rode in the dirt. We all know the story. And as the accusers dropped their stones and walked away, he said, where are the accusers? See, he silenced the voice of accusation to a place where she was able to hear his truth of mercy. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is our Jesus. The same Jesus that stopped. He went out of his way. A week's journey to find one outcast, ashamed woman by a well, collecting water when no one else would see her. And Why did he seek her out? To give her a free gift of grace. If you knew who I was, you would ask for the living water and you would never thirst again. The same Jesus that when walking through town one day, he spotted a chief tax collector. Surely here, the worst of sinners, the most despicable of the scum. Surely here he would call him down and point out publicly, this man's sin and shame. A man who'd robbed others purely for his own greedy motivation. What Jesus did call him, call him down. But he called him down to have a meal with him and offer him a gift of grace that transformed his life. This is the Jesus that steps down, who reaches out to the untouchable, the outcast, the leper. Here is the Jesus that offers us mercy, that triumphs over every sin, every chain, every mistake. When we're faithless, he is faithful. When we have fallen down, he's the one who's there to pick us up. To dust us off. So James's whole point here is he's saying, how can we not forgive if we truly stop to remember what we've been forgiven of? How can we not love others? How can that not be our, our first motivation if we truly grasp this unfathomable, breathtaking love that has been extended to us? How can we not honor and bless when the king of glory bent down to wash our feet and to lift us up? 
So I know it's, it's sometimes said, well, we've got to be careful. We can't overemphasize grace and mercy. We, we don't want to preach it too much because that will then cause people to sin more. And I think it's such a paradox because, first of all, just look around you. Look around us in the world. We're having no problem sinning without or apart from the message of grace. It's not grace, it's the issue, it's our fallen nature. But quite in contrast, it is grace that is the very thing that we need to silence the voices of the accuser and for us to hear and then to go and proclaim those words. Neither do I. If anyone could condemn, it's Jesus. But he came not to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. This true picture of grace, it leaves us in awe and breathless wonder. It's all gift. It's all gift. It's the moment that we move away from that where all of a sudden there's a system where everything's earned. God owns me. Everybody else owes me. And before I know it, I'm sitting there again in the chair of judgment. I can't help but just making those comments, those little gossipy remarks behind closed doors when nobody else is listening. You know, we serve a God of incredible, unfathomable grace. And that's the essence of it. That's where it comes down to. I want to just get the worship team to come back if they can. I want to end with a couple of stories. Don't mind sharing some of my own silly mistakes if it helps. But I had a moment. Have you had one of those moments where you just do something so ridiculously stupid that you cannot believe you've just done it? Only one of us. Thank you, Simon and Dirk. I feel better too. Where two or more are gathered. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was um, just been doing some work around my property on a Monday, which is my day off, and I dropped my young girl at preschool, my youngest. And uh, I had just finished. I knew I had to go pick her up, so it was about you know quarter to three in the afternoon. And I'd been driving around a little bit. If you know my, if you know where we live, it's just out of town, a bit of a small acreage that's very steep, steeply sloped in places. So I'd, you know, been out and about, out, you know, pulling the car around, had my phone on me, and I knew that I'd left my phone behind. So I jumped in the car, started up the car, and then thought, oh, I've got to jump out and grab the phone. So I jumped out of the car, turned around to pick up my phone, and then heard this noise. You know when you hear those noise noises and you're just afraid to turn behind and look? <laughs> I was like, oh, that doesn't sound good. So I turned around and there was my car heading driverless down a very steep portion of my block. And I had two thoughts running through my mind. I thought this could be my Indiana Jones moment. <laughs> he runs out, he lassoes the car and pulls himself in there. But by the time I'd sort of got enough courage the car was gone so I just I must have looked very funny but I ran after it 
And down went the cart, went through our front fence, and then there's the main kind of road that goes around the area. Fortunately, there was no cars coming. There was no animal harmed in the sermon illustration. But there's an embankment of a couple of metres between the end of my block and then down to the road. So it went airborne over the embankment. It came nose first down on the uh, road, went straight through my neighbour's fence, and then eventually ended up coming to rest halfway down in their paddock. So I made the very embarrassed phone call to my neighbours and said, I'm not sure how to say this, but uh, my car's parked in the middle of your paddock. Had a bit of an incident. And I tell the story for this reason, you know, the neighbour quickly came home and he took one look at the car and I won't repeat exactly what he said, there's a few expletives in there, but he, he said to me, he's like, how can you be so relaxed? Someone was saying stupid, but <laughs> there, there, was, there was a bit of that in there too. He's like, how are you so calm? If that was me, I would be, you know, expletive, very upset. And I said, well, you know, there's, there's seasons and there's times in my life where I would have beaten myself up. What a stupid mistake to have done. And in fact, just this uh, couple of days ago, the latter portion of this week, so I've been going through insurance claims. The car was a write-off. And um, <clears throat> of course, you I've never made an insurance claim and I was expecting the worst. I shouldn't have done that. I should have been expecting the best. But I was just hoping for enough money to come out of the uh, insurance claim to be able to pay off the car loan and, and um, clear it off. And then my wife and I were saying, well, you know, we don't have enough money right now to get a new car. What are we going to do? All those kind of questions and wrestling through. And uh, insurance claim was processing, got a call probably Thursday from the insurance company. And I said, oh, we've been reviewing your policy. And I thought, here we go. I bet there's some clause about driverless vehicles causing accidents. You know, you need to be in the car and they're going to not claim it at all. But they said, actually, we've been reviewing your policy and it looks like we can offer you a brand new replacement vehicle. I said, are you serious? Like, is this for real? But apparently that's in my policy there somewhere and so the car has been ordered they've sourced it they've found it they said we'll put all the same accessories on it it's a brand new model with zero kilometers on there and and so for me that was that little reminder from the Lord this week that even when you make the most stupid ridiculous mistake there's a God of grace and it's not grace just enough just to help you get, get by. It's grace and it's more grace. It's grace. I want you to close your eyes. Just one more little picture I want to share with you. Because it leads into what I just feel like the Lord wants to do this morning. But... I was remembering just as, as I was praying for the service this morning, I had this instance with one of my little girls when you know, she just started learning to ride a bike. And we had this bike, it was more a BMX style, and the front handlebars could actually rotate 180 degrees and you could still ride it. It, it looked virtually similar. Problem was that when the handlebars were rotated, the brakes were just slightly clamped on. So although you could ride it, it was particularly difficult. 
we'd headed off for a ride on this particular day and she was there, I didn't realise, but she's struggling away and she's persistent and she's determined, but it just got to this place where she just called out. She said, Daddy, I can't do this anymore. I said, sweetheart, what's wrong? And I looked down, I hadn't even realised, but she's there, little tears forming in her eyes. And she said, Daddy, I'm just trying and I'm trying and it's, it's just not working. And as soon as I looked at the bike, I thought, I know exactly what the problem is. I said, sweetheart, let me fix this. Turned the handlebars around. She hopped on. Off we went. And sometimes that's a picture of us, you know, where we're trying to figure this out. We're trying to work. We're just striving in our own strength. And the Father is wanting today to remind some of us, maybe many of us here, there's grace. He's not that God who's like, come on, figure it out. Just try harder. He's like, no, no, you're doing it all wrong. This is not about you trying at all. I've already done it all. I've already done it all. Rest in my grace. I want to give you the encouragement that God gave Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. He said, my grace is For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. His grace is sufficient. Wherever you're at, whatever you're struggling with, if you're feeling tired and uninspired, there's grace. If you're sick of fighting the same old battles, wondering if victory will ever come, there is grace. If you're broken and given up and all you can see is the pieces around you, there's a God who specializes in putting together broken pieces, in redeeming broken lives. And He wants to pour out afresh this morning on every one of us here His grace. Grace that not only transforms you, it'll transform the way that you see and you relate and you treat others. So, Father, would you come this morning? Thank you that you are a God whose grace is sufficient. Thank you that it's it's your delight to come just as, as we struggle and we and we strive and we've set up these systems of, of how we judge others, and and the only way that we feel okay is if is if we're comparing and criticizing and, and you just come and say, hey, 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 here's my system. It's the King of glory who's come to love you right where you're at. Grace for every weakness. His blood is provision for every sin. garment of praise for for heaviness. Just let Him pour out His grace upon you. So we thank You for Your grace this morning, Lord. We pray that there'd be just a fresh outpouring of Your mercy and Your grace to such a degree that it transforms the way that we live our lives, the way that we see You, as James has talked about, the way that we relate towards other people. 
May we be a people who are, are so ingrained, so full of the depths of your mercy and grace that our only thought is to build others up. It's like the first thing you do when you see something amazing is you grab your phone, you take a picture, you've got to share it. Lord, that's, that's how we want to be with your grace and your mercy. So aware of it that all we want to do is, is tell others. You're not going to believe how amazing this is. God who meets me in the middle of the mess. We thank you for who you are. We thank you even this morning for what you're doing in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name. So I just want to ask the prayer team up this morning. Just the, uh, the worship team just finishes with a song here. and Why don't we stand? Let's do that. Let's activate. Prayer team can come up. And particularly this morning, here's the altar call. I told those stories for a reason. If you are in that place and you know that you need grace, you need more grace. Maybe it is like many seasons of my life that you're just beating yourself up. He wants to pour out His grace upon you. Maybe it is that you know that you're trying and you're trying and you're trying. It's not working. You're ready to give up. He wants to pour out His grace afresh. Maybe it's in the way you view others. You know that you're judgmental. You know that you're critical. His grace is sufficient. If you'll be willing to just come and say, Father, I need you this morning. So if that's you, as we sing this last song, just come forward and we'd love to pray with you. Bless you this week.